Welcome to Tabletop Journal's Seat Yourself podcast series on the hospitality tabletop industry. Now, here's your host, Dave Turner. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to our Seat Yourself podcast. I'm Dave Turner, and I'm your host here at Seat Yourself. Seat Yourself is our weekly podcast that covers the news and the items of interest and relevancy, all within the food service and hospitality industries. By the way, for those of you who are counting, and I know you're there, this is episode number 111 of Seat Yourself, and it's published the week of March 29th, 2021. And today, it's a beautiful spring day here on the East Coast of America in the great city of Baltimore, and we're coming to you from Studio B this time of the Stewart Tabletop Journal Studios. This week, we've got a very special guest on Seat Yourself. We'll be joined by England's Matt Inwood. Now, Matt Inwood is a very talented, very expressive, and a very creative individual who has a multitude of creative talents, all of which we're going to touch a little bit on in our upcoming conversation. But today, I really want to focus on Matt and his work in the area of photography, particularly phone photography. Now, of course, as a professional, Matt works with DSLR cameras and all kinds of high-tech equipment, but his real, what I would call his real-world work in the area of phone photography, that's what really has me interested, and I wanted Matt to come on and discuss it further with us. And it's not just his photography work that I find interesting, although it is certainly that, and we'll, show you, we'll tell you where to find it uh, in, during, the, during the podcast, but it's what Matt teaches others to do through his online workshops that I find so fascinating. And hopefully you will as well. So, with all of that, let's get right to it. Let's give a warm, warm seat yourself welcome to Mr. Matt Inwood. Matt, welcome to Seat Yourself. Thank you, Dave. Uh, really thrilled to be here and talking to you. I couldn't be more excited to have you on the podcast today with me, Matt, because... People, after this podcast, they, everybody needs to go to mattinwood.com and discover all that is Matt Inwood because there's a lot there and uh, there's some really, really cool stuff. And I don't care whether you're a chef, a supplier, or just somebody who's really looking to improve their creativity. There's a lot going on with Matt Inwood and you're definitely going to want to check it out. Matt, before we get started, I know many of the listeners in the UK are very familiar with you and your background. And by the way, we have a lot of listeners in the UK, so this is going to be uh, familiar ground for them. But for those who may not be as familiar with uh, you and your background, can you just fill us in a little bit? Take a few minutes and give us a snapshot of who Matt Inwood is and how you got to be the creative guru genius that you are. <laughs> Creative guru genius. Uh, I'll take that. Mostly. I couldn't think of any other. I couldn't think of any other uh, flattering words. So those are the first things that came to mind. So there you go. That, I, and and that's the first thing, isn't it? Labels are very strange and uh, often boxing. But creative guru genius sounds like the scope for lots. Yeah, um, Savants and all that, you know, knower uh, <laughs> of all knowledge. That, well, uh, yes, I'm. Uh, I'm exactly that, really. I guess these days I'm. I'm probably best known for my phone photography, specifically for workshops that I've been running for the last uh, three and a half, four years. But skipping way, way back, this is going back twenty, gosh, twenty three years now. I got in into... when you were an infant, because you're a young guy. <laughs> you were probably one or two years old then. Huh? I'm uh, I'm mid forties now, and ah. uh, twenty, yes, twenty four years ago, I think I uh, I came out of art college, so I, I did my degree in fine art. Back then, I imagined it would be forever. Uh, the case that I'd be drawing and painting for the rest of my days. That was that was the only ever plan I had as a child um, to continue that. Art college teaches you a lot, and I realized quite quickly that I didn't have that same drive that that others do. So um, I realized that it wasn't painting canvases that was going to dictate the, the rest of my days. I came out mm -hmm. of there and via a couple of jobs in, in retail and, and so on, part-time things, I I stumbled really. It was a friend who invited me to, to take up a part-time job as a picture researcher with an independent food publisher. There is no such job today. You, you, you won't be surprised to, to hear. 
pre-Google, pre-internet even, you know, picture yes. researching was a thing. That, that was back in the day you used to get on the phone to an agency, a library such as Halton Getty or, you yeah. know, one of the big, big picture archives. And you would say, I'm, I'm looking for a, a photo of a, a guy in a field holding a bunch of grapes. Um, you know, France would be good, but we'll take anything you've got, basically. And yeah. someone would come back to you three days later and say, I found these six transparencies. I'll send them to you. And and so I, I researched pictures for the books that this publisher were, that, that we were creating. And then came the internet and then left the friend that had introduced me to the business. She went on to freelance life and I started to take on more of her her old responsibilities and her role, which was to assume the role of designer for the company, book designer. So that was me that was choosing the typefaces, uh, designing the grids for the books, and then eventually commissioning photography working with photographers, illustrators, and then the conduit between um, editors and printers and production. It was a small, small publisher, a brilliant independent publisher called Absolute Press, just based in the, um, I'm sure your listeners over that side of the water will know, in the beautiful city of Bath. And so I I did that for for, uh, art directing and designing and generally just having a hand in all bits of the business for for the best part of 15, 16 years, I think. Oh, wow. You have a great sort of foundational background right there uh, in design and all. I mean, it's it's kind of a generalist thing, but it's very specific to book design and, and all that goes into it. And so you have that's that's great. That's great. A piece of experience. You get to know the whole business. Uh, as, yeah. as with most companies, the smaller you are, the more you have to do. You're, you're the guy in dispatch one day. You're the guy on the end of a phone another. And, and then <laughs> increasingly it was, um, you know, it, it would be in my evenings at home, back on the home computer, that I get to do the thing that, that was my role, my responsibility, art direction, designing the books. But that's the thing that introduced me to both the world of food, eating out. Um, my, my publisher there, my, my, my dear old publisher, John, John Croft. I, I mean, he's, he's brilliant for so many things. Uh, he was the person to discover Keith Floyd the first person to to publish Floyd and his books, the collaborations that then followed with the BBC, the TV series, and so on. But he was also the first publisher of his kind to seriously put together restaurant collections. So books of recipes from restaurant chefs. It started very locally, provincially, with I think it was something like the Bath restaurant recipe book, something like that. Then there was one for London. And it it just grew into, he became the, the, probably the best known publisher and and still remains to this day, one of the best known publishers for restaurant chefs who want to get their work published in in a beautiful quality edition. Um, He's still going today. I'm amazed at that because about what year was that? Uh, Not exactly, but I mean, if you can recall, was it 20 years ago that you were doing that? Well, I'm 45 now, so this would, for me, I joined the company probably in, uh, where are we, probably about 19, oh Christ, I'm awful at going back in time, uh, 1990. Six, 97, 96, 97, wow. I would think. If you, and the reason I'm asking you that is if you think how important those types of image books and, and pictures are today to the restaurant world. I mean, where would the restaurant world be today? And we're, and we're going to get into the workshops and all the work that you do because it's really fascinating to me. I can't even imagine where the dining out industry would be without great imagery, great books originally, but now internet pictures and so on. That imagery, it, it tells the whole story. I mean, nobody's, well, we're getting ahead here, but but I, I'm amazed that this was going on, you know, 20, 25 years ago, maybe even longer. That That's that's pretty ahead of its time. That's, that's cool. I mean, back in those days, it, it was obviously pre-digital. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, the, the, the shoots in those days, the photography shoots, which I came to commission for the publishing house, were very, very different affairs. You, you would shoot everything on transparency, either yeah. on 35 millimeter film or medium format. And you wouldn't know until maybe a week, two weeks later, if you'd actually got the shot. 
you had to send them <laughs> off to a laboratory. That's crazy. You'd have a Polaroid, you know, the most, most photographers that we worked with, they'd have a Polaroid camera, they'd shoot a Polaroid film, they'd warm the film underneath their armpit to, to hasten yep. the, um, the developing process. You'd get a, a little look at this murky, dark print. And the photographer would say, yeah, I think we're good to go. And then they'd shoot 24, 36 exposures in a range of, they'd bracket those exposures, underexpose a few, overexpose another. But you shot one shot. You know, wow. you set up for one That's shot. Amazing. And you had to yep. get that spot on with your one film. You know, you might bracket six or 12 exposures, but you might use an entire film just on one dish. And, and then you'd set up on the next one and so on. It was a slow procedure. And I still remember the very first book that switched to digital. And I was shooting with a photographer called Jason, Jason Lowe. Jason's well-known around the world. And he had quite a reputation. And he was, he was brilliant. But I remember he was the very first photographer to switch to a digital camera. And they were fantastically expensive things back then. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you can't imagine how much they, they, they were. Um, so it was slow, the uptake, and it was daring. And, and photographers were still talking about, you know, you can't compete with the true quality of film. And there are some that still absolutely believe that as well. Yep. It was a very, very um, interesting time. But yes, to, to go back to that chronology, um, I, I, I was doing that for 16, 16 years, I think. I left to go freelance. That would have been, where are we now? About seven or eight years ago, I guess. And I thought I would carry on doing what I'm what I'd been doing all of those years, um, designing books, art directing for books, staying within that food hospitality world that I'd come to know so well. I'd come to know it so well and I'd come to pigeonhole myself into it as well. I I, I believe that was the thing that I did and would continue doing. And being freelance meant that I could have freedom to try different things, work with different people, and hopefully manage my time. I was the father of one young child, one baby at that time. So it was just a, a chance to try different things. But actually, the publishing, the, the design work didn't come as anything like as, as fast or as readily as I expected. And so I think that was the point at which I started to think, I, you know, I do need to diversify and I do need to add more stuff to, to what I do. And just before I'd gone freelance, one of the final projects I worked on when I was in-house was a book for the client was MasterChef. And the photographer, who I'm sure many of your listeners will know, um, a brilliant, brilliant food photographer, David Loftus. David's best known for his work um, shooting all of Jamie Oliver's books. But he's much, much more than that. He's, he's worked on I think he's probably one of the most food photographs out there in the world in published form. I would think David probably holds a claim to that title, I would think. So many books behind well, you've him. You've just given it to him if he doesn't. So there you go. <laughs> Quite. Isn't that great? Um, he's that great? There, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And his work's beautiful. And MasterChef said, can you uh, – we, we had a book. We, it was a second book that we were producing for them. And they asked us, can we come up with an idea that would make – this next title, something different, something that could be marketed, something that might have the potential to get the viral interest of the social media crowd, which of course was in full bloom and, and, and blossom by then. So it was my idea to ask David, do you think there's a way that perhaps we shoot this next book for MasterChef on your phone? David was big on Instagram and um, loved using his phone. The concept was to send David all around the world, over to San Francisco, to Brazil, to Italy, to Spain, and shoot 20 of the world's greatest chefs, all of whom had an involvement with MasterChef across its, its worldwide TV formats. And David said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And the publisher said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And our parent publisher the independent publishing company I worked for had been bought by Bloomsbury of, of Harry Potter fame by that point. The parent publisher said, yeah, that's a great idea. And then everyone had a week or two and everyone started, oh, is it a great idea? You Everybody know, the, sobered up then after, yeah, 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 let's do it. Let's do it. Oh, wait, wait a minute. The technology is not quite there at the moment. And so it suddenly became an idea that maybe we had to check 
it didn't happen in that format in the end. But that was the point at which I got onto Instagram. David said, you know, you know, you should start taking pictures on your phone and you should start publishing yeah. on Instagram if you're going to, you know, feel this thing and understand why why the phones could be um, a really interesting niche way to market this book. Uh, so I got onto Instagram then, and then I guess that takes us into the next uh, part of where I'm at, I suppose, phone photography and, and social media. And Well, I, I think that, and we've believed for a long time that photographers, uh, especially these days, because photo- everybody's a photographer, everybody's a journalist of some sort, but particularly in the catering, the restaurant, and the hospitality business, photographers are today's storytellers. And we live in such a crazy, fast-paced world, even in COVID times. There's the saying that if you don't have pictures, it didn't happen. And because everybody's got a camera in their pocket. And But you've told, besides the photography end of, the, end of all this, you've told stories for, for a long time in a variety of ways, I, I think. Haven't you throughout your career, through the written word, through uh, photography, and, and other means? Isn't that true? Yeah, that's that, that's true. I, I think, in in as much as it's true of most creatives, I, I think the if if you're working in creative communication, you're you're essentially telling a story, or, or you're 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 an important part of of telling a story. Um, my work as a designer means that the responsibility falls to me to package a story, and I need to be the one that communicates that. You know, I've always felt that most good design means that you're invisible in that process. Um, You've got a writer, you've got a photographer, an illustrator perhaps on top of that. You've got a number of different things. Um, Good editing and good designing usually means that you're quite invisible in the process and the plaudits go elsewhere. Um, So I think it's my responsibility when I'm designing a book, to make sure that that story is told with the greatest impact possible. And it means certainly working across all of those disciplines in such a small publishing house as as I did does enable you to see all of those different aspects of the job. It means that I cared a lot about the words on the page, even though words were not my particular remit. It meant that I cared an awful lot about the quality of the photography and making sure that a photographer a home economist, a food stylist, were all feeling very comfortable with the job that they'd been commissioned and briefed to do. And you want to make sure that everyone is doing their bit to tell that story correctly. And so uh, it begins with an author's words, and they've all got stories to tell. Uh, I mean, the more interesting books certainly have stories to tell. There are those that are commissioned along the lines of, you know, 100 pasta recipes and uh, and so on. And, and perhaps those aren't quite so story-led or driven. But there's there's always something there. And, and I think that side of my working life certainly opened th- that, that whole sort of storytelling element in, in, in the work that I do. I think today as an image maker, primarily as an image maker, then the opportunity to tell story and to share stories is is a really powerful thing. And of course, I work in that world of food, and there's nowhere that stories get shared and told more than around tables where, where we eat together, where we sit together with, with family, with friends, um, less so, of course, in these times than we would like. I'm, I'm going to interrupt you for a second, because I think the COVID times, I think the COVID times have taught us how just how important that sitting around that table with great food and great beverage, how just how important those times are for all of us. And I don't care whether you're in a three-star Michelin restaurant or you're in the neighborhood pub. Uh, I, I think it's I think that that human connection. Listen, people who've listened to Seat Yourself, they know they know me well enough now to know that I believe strongly that human beings are all hardwired to connect with other human beings. We're driven for that. And you see evidence of it all over the place. And the question I have, what is it about the photography component that has really lifted that to that that connecting with other human beings, lifted that to another level? What do you think? Why do you think we're all so drawn to taking pictures of everything we see these days? 
smartphones is the very, very short answer. Well, the, the convenience of it is, but but there's something more going on. You know, okay, yeah, it, it's very easy to pull a smartphone out and take the picture. But what causes people to want to have that? Are these zillion pictures of them doing everything from uh, sharing good times with family and friends to even very mundane things. Before we started uh, the podcast, we were talking about pets, dogs and cats. Everybody wants a picture of their dog or their cat on Instagram <laughs> these days. Well, what is it that draws us all to taking the pictures? Well, I, th I think you're correct to, to make the different uh, differentiate between the two. The, the, the hardware, the thing that we take the pictures with, is merely the thing that's made it accessible to, to pretty much every every individual on the um, uh, certainly in the Western world. But yes, the the impulse to do it is is a different thing. There, there's a brilliant documentary maker, um, uh, British documentary maker. I don't I don't know if you get his stuff over there. He he made a film a, a while ago. His name is Adam Curtis. He made a film called Hypernormalization. I think it's uh, hypernormalization. Hypernormalization. Have a look. Wow. It's um, <laughs> it's it's very too, it's way too highbrow for me, Matt. I'm 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 probably going to be missing that one. It's, um, it's, it's it seemed too highbrow for me, and he's a provocative filmmaker. He doesn't okay. intend to to join up all of the dots, but he wants to present all of the dots for you. He wants to show you which dots could link to other oh. dots. Okay. Um, very political. Lots of really interesting social commentary. But I remember there was something within that film to do with how the the powers of the individual has been slowly eroding over time. Certainly in the last few generations, probably, going back to maybe the, the 60s, 70s, you know, you get global markets crashing and the bank stepped in to bail out the, the politicians and then the politicians were forever in um, control of the, of the financial institutions at that time. You know, money is the thing which started driving politics. And because of that, that power shift, his documentary goes on to point out just how power is, is being ceded away from us. Because if the politicians don't have the power, and, and we're voting for politicians, but that becomes merely a thing that just gets certain people into positions of office that are then dictated to by the same people above them with, with the money, then we as individuals, even though we're given this power, this vote, it, it becomes something that's nowhere near as meaningful, as powerful a thing as it used to. My point being that when when we start ceding power in that way and losing power, he refers to these different ways that we started trying to, to retain some autonomy, to, to, to keep having a say in the world. And in the documentary, it, it, it's quite, it's quite, he goes into the 80s and, and when there was that, you know, there were Jane Fonda fitness videos and, you know, people suddenly decided I'm going to go and work out and, and exercise and look good. And we sort of seize power wherever we can. We get this little, these little bits of freedom and power wherever we can get them from. And I think a great example of that is social media. Yep. Um, we take that power, that autonomy, that ability to have a platform, to have a voice, to use that voice. And I think in a nutshell, that is the answer to your question. We, we want to have a little bit of power, a little bit of a say in, in how we present our, our take on the world. And, and the photograph, whether it's there at, over dinner with in, in some nice little village restaurant or whatever it might be, that's our little way of saying, I'm still in control. I'm still doing these, these things and sharing it with, with those few people or those hundreds or thousands of people. I think it's a little bit of that, that little bit of power that we can hold on to and grab. Power is not the nicest of, of words uh, to describe it, but I, I think you probably get the gist of what I'm on about. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. I, I think that people want to tell their own story. The common person being a everyday journalist kind of thing. And tabletop journalism has been around for about 10 years now, coming up on really fast on 10 years. And to think that we couldn't have done these things just a few, when we started tabletop journal, we could, you couldn't have done just a few years before that, couldn't have done it. And because it, it was about voice for a category, uh, obviously it's evolved a lot since then. But I, I think that we all want to, as you say, have a voice. 
and social media has exploded that ability to convey a voice literally all around. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm stunned sometimes that all the people that will be, for instance, listening to this podcast, whether they be in China, whether they be in Middle East, whether they be in the UK, whether they be anywhere in the US, we get listeners from all over the place and I'm humbled by it in a certain way, but I'm also amazed by it. I, the, the fact that we've tried to build communities of people who are interested, not big communities, but people who are passionate. And I don't, I didn't care if it was a community of one or two other people in the beginning. And and what you find out is, I use a word many times, uh, people, again, who know me well, uh, have heard it before. I use the term kindred spirits. Kindred spirits, to me, find each other even in the dark. And what, what I mean by that often is that no matter, it sometimes takes a little longer, but if you are passionate and authentic about your beliefs, and you obviously are, people find you. And, and the world is great in that respect these days. Now, it's true that nobody puts their worst days out on social media. But you can find people who think like you and believe like you. And, and there's pluses and minuses to that because we all need to, to have diverse lines of thought and, and consider them the people who think differently than we do or look differently than we do. That's true. But, but you can discover lots of things through social media. And, and for me, uh, imagery is uh, the photography that we do. It's, it's amazing. And I, I want to I take a break, but then I want to come back and I want to dive right into your workshops Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about how you teach us all to be better photographers with our phones, because everybody takes pictures and most of us take pretty poor pictures. And you're, <laughs> you're improving the world one smartphone at a time, my friend, one Instagram <laughs> post, one smartphone at a time. So everybody, we're here with Matt Inwood. We, we're going to take a break and come right back. He's going to tell you how you too can take photos like he does when we come back from the break. Matt, we'll be right back with you. Lovely. Thanks. This episode of Seat Yourself is sponsored in part by the Edward Don and Company. Everything but the food for nearly 100 years. And if you have not yet signed up for Tabletop Journal's bi-monthly newsletter, now would be a great time to do so. Go to tabletopjournalnewsletter.com. It's a quick and easy sign-up and a great way to stay on top of all the important going-ons in the world of hospitality tabletop. That's tabletopjournalnewsletter.com. Now, back to our podcast. And welcome back, everybody. We're here with Mr. Matt Inwood. Mr. Matt is a phenomenal photographer, but he's so much more and he does actually workshops, if you can imagine it, to teach common, just really stupid people like me how to take better photography with their smartphones. And Matt, that's what I want to dive right into. That's kind of your your main business, and and I want to, I want to understand it right now. But you, we're going to get into some other parts of of what you do afterwards. But tell our folks about your, your photography workshops. What is a photography workshop for a smartphone from Matt Inwood like? Uh, well, I'll tell you where it began. It was a commission from the Guild of Food Writers here in the UK. That's a guild that represents every food writer. The, if you're a published food writer, you can join the guild. And the guild encourages the marketing of your work, and it does all it can to support writers. And in doing so, it, it, it approached me and asked me if I would consider putting together a workshop for its members. I think there are about 20 of them on that first workshop. This is about four years ago. And I think they approached me because I was a guy with a phone who took nice pictures. I wasn't by any, well, I I was a photographer, but only in as much as we are all photographers. I certainly wasn't a professional photographer. And if anyone ever asked me to take pictures, then I was a photographer with inverted commas around that description. So I put the workshop together and it took me a long time to write it. And the thing that they asked me to do was just start from the beginning, tell tell people what it is you do when you think it's about amazing when, you, when you're starting something that you start at the beginning it's isn't difficult it? it's difficult if someone asked you you know so tell someone how you how did you get into podcasting how did you build a brand that's that's been going over 10 years and and actually it's it's a sequence of things that's that's not linear that's not seamless that's not beautiful and perfect it's it gets 
constructed via a number of different it's things. It's a little, a little messy. Very messy and very difficult to pin down. I did pin it down. And I think the fact that I've been running from the same template for four years now that I started with back then suggests that the thing that I did pin down, that I did itemize my photography to be based around, was authentic. It was the, the truly the way that I see, the way that I, I think and understand. So that's what I do in the workshops. I try to introduce people to how I see and, of course, to how I do. But I, th I think the seeing and the thinking behind a photo are much more important than the doing. And so the workshop itself comprises three main elements. It's a presentation of, uh, uh, that's, that uses examples of my photography work. And in that presentation, I explore all of those, those aspects of photography you'd expect, whether it's composition, angles, lighting. Lighting is, is crucial, is fundamental. And then there's a, a, a demonstrative part, a, a practical element. And then there's a, a tour, and it's, it's become quite a whistle-stop tour now, of, of the Instagram application itself, a platform which started so very um, in, in such a basic way, but is, it has now developed to, it, it's really about four different platforms in one these days. So it incorporates all of those elements, but I, I always wanted to resist the idea that people shouldn't want to leave the workshop being able to take photos like I do. I, I was never interested in creating, a, uh, I, I say it in the workshops, uh, you know, an army of Mattinwood minions that go out into the world and shoot dark, moody pictures, etc. Dark, um, moody pictures. I don't believe that. I want people to get an idea for what they want for their own images. And it's back to that thing that you were uh, touching on earlier the the telling of stories that's that's really the thing i try and focus on because most of the people that come on the workshops there are a few amateur photographers that are quite keen to do it and just improve their photography but most people are business people most people are trying to run a brand a business a small company and they're the person that does everything and and they have to be the one that's opening up the shop at the beginning of the day, yep. but also photographing and taking uh, pictures of the produce to sell on Instagram. And, and so it's encouraging everyone to find their story, to understand what it is, and then, of course, to, to tell it in the most impactful, efficacious way that they can. So it's, uh, it's all that. The workshops themselves, full day, half day, big crowd. Tell us a little bit about the, uh, the workshops themselves. My wife will tell you it's a full day. <laughs> I'm running them from home at the moment. They're, they're over Zoom. So my wife will tell you about all this sort of uh, hushed, please don't you know, come stomping past the, the door and don't everyone cram onto the Wi-Fi at the same time, otherwise the connection. Yeah. I hold the family hostage for the days that I run them uh, most oh, of my the God. time. Uh, no one sees that side of things, of course. Um, but it's it's four hours, essentially. We usually kick off at 10 a.m. UK time. We put about a half hour break into the middle and we run till uh, I've extended it till 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So it's, it's getting on for four and a half, five hours. And then I stay on afterwards for Q&A. And, and that can be sort of 20 minutes. It's 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 sometimes run to sort of an hour plus. How big a uh, group do you normally have about? 20, 30, 40. You mentioned 20 before, but... Well, I've added the extra half hour to take on an extra few people. It used to be 15 people. Uh, okay. I've extended it to 20. As, as you know, because of these these platforms now, Zoom and Teams and yeah. so on, it, it could be 120 people if I wanted it to. But I, I like to try and ensure that everyone has a chance to interact, to, to ask questions, and to feel like they're part of a smaller group rather than something massive. Yeah, it's a little more intimate. It's a little more intimate. There. It is. And, and so for my, for my four and a half, five hours and my direct contact in that intimate setting, more or less, what, what does it cost me? It costs you 69 English pounds. That seems like a relative bargain. British pounds, I should say. <laughs> to get my time with Mr. Matt Inwood. I, I think that if you, anybody's wondering about Matt and his ability to tell you 
or show you how to improve your picture taking, whatever. Matt, is is it just Matt Inwood? Is that the, the Instagram handle that you have for your Insta, your personal one? There's a little underscore in the middle of that. Matt underscore Inwood is um, okay. is my Instagram handle. But it is mattinwood.com that they can go to. I-N-W-O-O-D, to find out a little bit more about these workshops. And I would encourage everybody to do that because, listen, we all stink. Let's admit it. We, we <laughs> give it our best shot for, for the most part. People like Matt don't stink. But but people like me and, and, and most of the people that I know are average to poor. And we have to sh still shoot multiple, multiple pictures to get one decent one. Uh, so if you want to improve your skills at photography with your smartphone and, your, and learn a little bit more about Instagram, because you're right. Matt. Instagram is, is a lot more than just where it was when it started. So uh, I would encourage everybody to check out Matt's workshops. Although you, you said that uh, in, in the break that your next couple are sold out. So you have to, you'll have to have more of them. And, and disrupt your family even more. I, I do. And I, actually, I've taken over my daughter's bedroom on, on the days that I run them now, rather than being that thing in the in the lounge that no one can be noisy around, that the puppy can't come and bark and the washing machine mustn't go on and all of those things. Uh, I'm now removed upstairs and it, it's probably a better space to do them. But um, You see, folks, even celebrities like Matt Inwood, they have <laughs> the same stuff going on in his house. They have the same stuff going on in Matt's house that you and I have going on in our house at our time. We have the dogs come in. We have the doorbell rings. We have all kinds of stuff going on when we're on, on all these Zoom calls and everything. Photography is only one thing, Matt, that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. We'll circle back around and we'll give people the information on the workshops and again at the end of the end of the podcast. But I also want to talk about another skill that you have. Uh, you've been quoted, Matt, in the past as saying that more than anything, I'd love to write. That's pretty amazing to me because when I look at your photography, it, it's so expressive. But what is it about the written word that appeals to you so much? Your written word is pretty good. I've read some of your words. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. Um, I do love to write. And more than anything, I would love to write. I, I mean, technically, um, most accurately, more than anything, I'd love to sing. But I, I know that that's definitely no, what, not No dancing? <laughs> no dancing. Singing would be... I, uh, so in, in terms of a, a pecking order of the arts, if you like, music pecking is, order of the arts. I like music's that. the one that I, th I feel moves, moves me the most. And, and I think possibly mo it's the one that most people you connect to, to music and literature is that same thing, uh, I think. And uh, yeah, I, I've been a writer for a long time. I, I write, that is to say, I'm not a published writer. I've ghosted a few things during my years of working in book publishing. But the writing that I that, that really interests me is actually, um, I don't know what you call it. Well, I do know what you call it. You call it memoir. And, and I think the um, for most people, memoirs, biographies, if you prefer, they're the stuff that you read about people that we know about, the, the, the famous people, the celebrity people, and so on. And actually, I, for a long time, I've written, and, and for, for some years, I, I used to publish. They're no longer online, many of the, the biographical writings that I used to publish. I've written about my own life, and my mother especially is, is a huge figure in those writings. I think they're very personal and there's quite a deep sense of connection through the writing to various life experiences. I think as I've got older, things like politics has probably crept in a bit more. And and you see my writing on Instagram as well. You know, I, I love uh, the, the, the beauty of Instagram is that it's it's much more, if you want it to be much more than just a picture expressing, you know, that, that, that thing of a picture telling, a, you know, being as powerful as a thousand words is is very true. But a few well-chosen words are every bit as powerful as uh, a thousand lousy pictures. So, um, yeah. You know, the, the writing, the captions on Instagram, sometimes I really do go into depth there and, and tell stories there. It's one thing to take the picture, and you're obviously a great photographer, I'm not, but it's also um, quite something else to, as you say, a couple of carefully chosen words to frame the picture and tell people what they should think about that picture, or at least steer them in a certain way. I think we all have that talent to express ourselves inside us. I think sometimes our shell, our outer shell has become so hard through life 
or maybe it always was hard. Maybe it just didn't become hard. But some people have difficulty expressing that and feel uncomfortable expressing it because of the vulnerability that exposes us all to. But you wrote something not long ago. It was an article, I'll call it, but it's more than that. It was something called Be Kind. Why did you write about being kind? And was it difficult to write about the idea of kindness and the need for being kind? Was that hard for you? Yes. I think writing should be hard. Um, I I think articulating things that that are authentic, that are are well-rounded and and thought through um, is difficult. It took me a lot of time, but that that was okay. I I was asked to contribute to a project by a couple of friends, a couple of friends who actually uh, I'm I'm interviewing myself later this evening for a, a live Instagram talk later on the platform. There are a couple of very, very inspiring people. And actually on first meeting with them, I didn't realize this, just quite how inspiring and deeply that connection would be felt between us. They're really lovely. They're two incredibly positive people. I wouldn't describe myself in in, in those same terms at all. But they, they look to find positivity and they look to encourage everyone with much of what they do, certainly in public platforms, social media. And they put together this project. They're called Feasts and Fables is the name that they go under on Instagram. Uh, But it's Barry and Jojo. And Barry and Jojo put together Feasts and Fables, which, of course, is storytelling and and food, essentially, which is what it boils down to. And they're, they're, they're looking to create experiences and to create encouragement in the world for other people. They're great mentors and great supporters of other people's projects and to that end they created something called the encouragement manifesto the encouragement manifesto had seven points commandments if you like things to do to to make the world a better place generally and they're really interesting principles and one of them was simply be kind and they approached a number of individuals they come to know over the years to to write about each of those commandments and they approached me and they said would you like to pick one and there are a number of them you know be kind be the pebble in the pond you know so you just create the ripples other people sure. all of those sorts of things there it's a lovely set of principles and i said i'd like to take kindness i'd, I'd love to do kindness if no one else has gone for it and that was that I, I they asked me to just go with it any way i wanted to and kindness is a really interesting idea it's a, it's an exchange of things between people and just recently i, I i've been doing some work for, with a client over over here photographing all of their new food range and they were setting up and they were struggling they had to pivot their business from being a restaurant to a home delivery food service like so many in the industry here have have done during COVID times. And I knew things were difficult, that there was no cash coming into the business, that it was an idea that could could work and might or might fail. And I said, look, just I'll photograph it. Just send the food. I'll enjoy the food with my wife and family and I'll photograph it. And there's there's no charge. Just let's see if we can get you up and running and and et cetera, et cetera. And they're doing really well. They're doing really, really well. And they were very grateful. And I was shooting with them just recently. They they insisted on paying me after the first three or four photography shoots I did. And when I got with them just recently, they said, can you now retrospectively invoice us for the for the first um, uh, shoots that you did? And I said, oh, no, no, don't worry about that. And they said, no, 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 please, Matt, we're doing, we're doing better. You know, we are able to pay you now and we would like to thank you for your kindness. And, you know, I did intend to do that. I did intend to send off a token invoice, but I, I didn't get around to it quickly. Anyway, long story short, they sent me a very beautiful, lovely gift that arrived in the, in the post about a week later. And I opened this in front of my wife and I said, I think this is, this must be a mistake. This is, and I saw this little message at the bottom. Thank you for, for your kindness. And, and I realized for them, it was the only way they felt they could actually get me to accept something. And, and at that moment I felt very overwhelmed and a little teary and, and incredibly happy. And that friendship that we've, we've built is, is a lovely and dear thing. But it, it just reminded me that if if they had accepted my kindness with that same sense of overwhelm that I'd received their gift, 
it's it's a very difficult thing. You should never assume that kindness is a, is an easy thing to receive. And I think there's something in that story that you read about putting a a coin into the cup of a beggar. And, you know, that that's not specifically kindness. That's charity. But to sit down and, and talk with that person, to take their hand, to put a hand on their shoulder, whatever it might be. And look them in the eye, you said. Yes, yeah. Look them in the eye. I think that's an important part of today's world. We'd, everybody's fast-paced. It's so easy to look by things that you're uncomfortable with. And and sometimes you need to look people right in the eye. And that uh, one of the other parts of your, your article on being kind that I appreciated and liked very much was uh, your explanation that kindness happens between two or more people. But even self-kindness requires two sides of the same person. So if you're going to be kind to yourself, you're, and, and we've talked a lot on Seat Yourself about self-care and self-kindness. It's oftentimes very easy for us to be kind to others when we're not very kind to ourselves. And so we, especially during COVID times, we've tried to encourage people to be kind to themselves first. And that is helpful to then be able to spread that kindness out, outward to other people. And kindness to me happens one conversation, uh, one relationship at a time. I think kindness is way underrated. Uh, it needs to be overrated in this world these days. And, but I, and, and that's one, maybe one of the silver linings that comes out of COVID is that everybody is more grateful expresses more gratitude, realizes that bigger houses, bigger cars, faster uh, lifestyles and all that oftentimes aren't as meaningful. You used the word earlier, and I want to uh, come back to it. And that's the uh, when you talk about the template for your workshops of being authentic. And I think kindness comes out of the authenticity and your willingness to show who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And since I'm a marketing salesy kind of guy, I always relate back to brands. And brands, the best brands, the strongest brands I know, the very first pillar, and we've been preaching it for a long time, is the very first pillar in creating a strong brand, whether it's a product brand or your own personal brand, is authenticity, being who you say you are. And that sounds simple. It's not. And uh, people are always projecting. And social media, in some ways, uh, makes that even more difficult. Because I said earlier, nobody puts their worst day on social media. They always put their best day, even though they have worst days. And I'm always amazed that when people come on and say, my day today sucked, in my, or it was a train wreck, or this is the worst day. You know, I, I'm always amazed that people are that open to do that. But at the same time, yeah, we, it, it, it takes... Whatever relationship you might have with somebody, when you when you understand that that people have good days, everybody has a good day and a bad day. And if you if you can understand that, and people make mistakes and be forgiving, if you can understand those kinds of things, and to use your words, be kind, I think you're right. The world gets to be a better place, one person at a time. Yeah, I I, I think it's something we could we can all do, and it's something that's not always easy to do. And I I absolutely a hundred percent am with you on the the importance of self-kindness. That's, that's, that can be a really challenging thing to look after others before you've sorted yourself out is not necessarily the best way around. I should give a shout out to a project that, that that's here on Instagram that I know an awful lot of people in the hospitality industry here have, have started to get behind, which is called the Burnt Chef Project the Burnt Chef Project. And what he's doing is trying to to shine a light on those stresses that exist within the industry where historically, um, especially in that, that sort of machismo world of restaurant kitchens, it's changing and it's changing for the better, I think. But there's still an awful lot of stigma around mental health and wellness across the industry. Um, Burnt Chef Project is, is, is really growing and, and tackling some of that stigma and being a resource that helps people's particularly in that industry um right on and it's about starting with yourself yeah we we do an awful lot of that and we talked that we've talked about it over the over the covid times especially because not only is the restaurant and hospitality the horeca world if you will been just totally destroyed around the globe but so the chefs in the in the in the food service and hospitality worker has been really hammered 
but also the suppliers to that. And I come from the supplier side, the tabletop supplier side specifically, but all suppliers. And yes, I know if you're selling chemicals and cleaning products and all that stuff, your business is probably better than it's ever been. But the tabletop people uh, have really really taken the brunt of a lot of this. But and I also, one of the things I wanted to talk about about self-care is that the fact that it seems like, and maybe it's just me, but I, it seems like men have more difficulties in admitting a vulnerability than women do. And I know that's probably a very sexist, not a very uh, politically correct position to have, but I see that a lot. And a guy named Craig Spillane uh, up in Stoke Mm -hmm. has a group and uh, he has focused on men helping men. I won't get into the whole story, but we, we've, we've talked a lot about him. A fellow here in the U S Jason Wange has a positivity Facebook group. And there's a lot of things that are happening now that would never have happened perhaps because of COVID. So there is silver linings to all, all the pandemic things that have gone on. So uh, I appreciate you taking a few minutes and talking about self-care and kindness in general and writing about it. It's really important. I want to wrap up today, Matt, by, by telling people a little bit more about the workshops. How can they find it? How, how can they learn more about it? Let's give people the, the roadmap on how to find out more about your workshops and about Matt Inwood in general. Well, certainly the more people that can go to my website, mattinwood.com, it will finally be the kick I need to, to update it and get all of the new stuff on there that I've been promising to do for a few years. So um, mattinwood.com, you can find updates on all of the new workshops. There's usually a couple of months is, is how I've been running them over the last uh, 10 or 12 months, I guess. Instagram is, is my, my main platform, though. I guess most people are messaging me there to express interest. And it's Matt underscore Inwood on Instagram. That's right. Yeah, Matt underscore Inwood. And, and you'll, find, you'll find my alter alias at the same name on Twitter, the one that talks about football and politics a bit more than he does photography and food. There are many, there are so many dimensions, really, to you, aren't there, Matt? <laughs> Come on, now. We're going to have you back on and talk about politics. I, I have a feeling, so well, we'll get some British politics. <laughs> oh, football's first. Okay. All right. We'll do the football first, then we'll get into the politics. It's, <laughs> it's really been a pleasure having you with us, Matt. I've learned a lot. And again, I, I can't say it strongly enough. To go to Matt's website first and uh, check him out. You're going to be very pleased and he will, I promise, he will improve your photography with your smartphone. But you're going to learn a lot more than just about photography when you start engaging with Matt Inwood is my feeling. So there's a lot to Matt. Matt, you're uh, an expressive guy and I, uh, I admire that. You're the kind of people that I, uh, I love to hang around because I learned so much. And I'm sure our listeners have too. Thanks for joining us today. Well, you're coming on to the workshop, aren't you? So we're, we're going to... Well, we're going to, yeah, well, I'll, I'll be your poorest student. I'll be the one that says we could even take that guy on there and make him a half decent, not a good, but a half decent photographer with a smartphone. That's, that's the testimonial I need, I think. Yeah, you'll, you'll get that when I come on. They'll say he was the worst student, but we did improve him slightly. And even, <laughs> even the worst train wreck can be improved slightly. So it's been a great pleasure having you on, Matt. I've really enjoyed the conversation and be sure to check out mattinwood.com. Thanks again, Matt. Thanks so much, Dave. It's been an absolute pleasure. That concludes this week's episode of Tabletop Journal's Seat Yourself podcast series. For more news, information, and insights on the hospitality tabletop industry, please be sure to check out www.tabletopjournal.com.